Please continue in Acts chapter 2. If you were here two weeks ago, same passage. But this is part two. The Jerusalem model of church building. Part two. Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus said that. He had some more to it, but let's just focus on that. Jesus said, I will build my church. There's a lot of other things he could have said, but he said, I will build my church. Do I have any interest in that? Father, open our minds and our hearts to receive your word, to experience increasing transformation into the likeness in, in the steps of Jesus. And we bless you for all that you'll accomplish today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In recent newsletters and from the pulpit, I'm often setting forth information about the church, the New Testament church, because that's what Jesus said he was going to build. And so, should we not have a strong emphasis on that? What is my interest level in what Jesus is doing? Now, he upholds the whole world and he does the universe. And, and <laughs> But specifically, he says, I'm building my church. I don't think we think a lot about that. And often when we think about Jesus is, uh, Lord, there's something on my plate I sure wish you would tend to. Wish you would uh, help me out. Wish you'd show me the way in this or that or the other. I think it's been a while since we've said, Lord, you're building your church. What's my part in it? He doesn't need our help. And yet, this is a wonderful thing, an amazing reality. He builds his church with his co-laborers. 1 Corinthians 3, 6-9, Paul would say, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. We're his fellow workers, his servants working together. Can I say this morning that I am one of God's co-laborers? Have, have I thought of my identity in that way? There are a number of wonderful things about our identity in Christ. And we must not leave out our identity as a co-laborer with the God of the universe. Well, where does this grand church building work take place? And we mentioned this two weeks ago in Acts 1-8 in Jerusalem, or our case more specifically, Gallatin, Judea, Sumner County, 
Samaria, maybe Tennessee, USA, to the ends of the earth. So we often find ourselves praying for our missionaries who are in places that would be the ends of the earth. And that's good. But isn't it interesting that the, the sequence here is in your Jerusalem, in your Samaria, or in your Judea, in your Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Have you thought about the fact that if we're not God's co-laborers in Gallatin, there'll come a day that we won't have any funds to send, any prayers to send, any additional missionaries to send to the ends of the earth. If we don't busy ourselves, if we don't have our hands to the plow in being co-laborers together with God, not to build a name for ourselves, but to build a Bible-believing congregation that honors Christ, a failure to do that is going to affect the whole world. Or doing it will positively affect the whole world. He said, now wait a minute. Gallatin, Sumner County, Mission Field. I've been around a while. We've got hundreds of churches. Gallatin, Sumner County is not a mission field. We saw last two weeks ago that we have now over 200,000 people living in Sumner County. But on a given weekend, including every sect and cult that there is, the number of people meeting in religious services on a Sunday morning averages about 24,000 people out of 200,000. Nobody else. 12%. In other words, 170,000 or about 85% of the people aren't meeting with anybody. Being generous of that 24,000, let's say that 16,000 of them are really born-again Christians. That's 8% of the population of Sumner County. And... Uh, how many of that 8% show up for co-laboring activities? No matter how you slice it, we live on a mission field. A very needy mission field. Where most of the people that we rub shoulders with or see or know or work with or live nearby, they are one heartbeat from hell because they're dead in their sins and God has sent us to be laborers together with God for the souls of men it's our mission field I think we need a, another reminder of what the root problem is with our mission field everybody on the planet and everybody in our mission field is suffering from the same problem Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, 
the whole human race comes on the scene dead in sin. Walking according to the course of the world, walking according to the dictates of Satan who works in the lost, walking in the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and is by nature under the wrath of God. And Paul was reminding the Ephesian Christians and reminding us that those lost people out there on our mission field, they are like we once were, children of wrath. It's our mission field. And only the gospel can do anything about it. But hallelujah, the gospel can transform one or many of that 170,000. So we have another question. 200,000 people in Sumner County, or if you live outside of the bounds, we'll... And when we got these statistics some years ago, they did statistics, I think, on every county in Tennessee, and they were very similar no matter where you went so far as this percentages. The question is, am I a part of the mission field or am I a missionary, a co-laborer with God? What a high calling. What an astounding wonder that I could have the privilege and the honor and the responsibility to be a missionary, to be a laborer together with God. Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, unless we think, well, you've got to understand how hard it is, especially with who I live with or who I work with. Well, Jesus began his church. He said, I'll build my church and he began in the city that crucified him. That's not an easy mission field. So we are looking at the Jerusalem model of how Jesus began to build his church. And so we, in some of the verses that we did not read, we call reference to them two weeks ago in Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. And verse 36 and 37, the Spirit of God moved upon the apostles to preach a convicting, a sin-convicting message. And if you can be in a church week in and week out and never be convicted of sin, leave. Jesus came to save his people from their sin. And when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He convicts us of our sin. He convicts the sinner, the lost sinner of sin. And that righteousness, human righteousness, is of no value. And that judgment is coming. And there is a similarity as the rest of your life as a Christian. He will be faithful to convict us of our sin to convict us that our righteousness is of no value and that 
the judgment seat of Christ for the believer is coming. So Jesus built and still builds his church by bringing conviction of sin. There's no way to get around that. And so, if I'm going to be a co-laborer with God, I need to be preaching a sin-convicting message with my lips and with my life. The church at Jerusalem, the, the, the first people who heard this message, the King James says they were pricked in their heart. Uh, it needs to be a stronger word. They were conscience smitten. They were stabbed in their heart. And cried out, men and brethren, what must we do? And they were told to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sin and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Acts 2, verse 38, uh, we went over this last time. We're probably going to print this. It's important to have it clear, but I'm not going to take time to do it this morning. You can either go to the message two weeks ago, or hopefully we'll have a newsletter, because Acts 2, 38 is not a weapon. You may or may not have heard. I'll take an axe and two thirty-eights and destroy everybody who doesn't agree with my position on this. That, and many people believe in baptismal regeneration. And that's not what is being said here. Now, but notice in verse 39 that this promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit, is not only for you first who first heard it in Jerusalem, but for your children... And for all who are far away, including the Gentiles. And so here we are in 2023 and it's got this far. Hallelujah. As many as the Lord our God calls to himself. Salvation is a God thing. He's the author and the finisher and all the in-between. And, and notice in verse 40 that there is, is a sense of urgency coming from the apostles. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. There's no conflict here between those who are called by God, as he said in the previous verse, and supernaturally brought to conviction and faith, and at the same time, our Lord's co-laborers, first of all, Peter, continuing for a long time, pressing his case, pleading with them, find safety, escape, be saved from this crooked, perverse, perverted, false-minded generation. Those who want to try to negate the God-centeredness of salvation by saying, well, that just leaves us nothing to do, you have to take all of Scripture as it is. Salvation is of the Lord. But he has co-laborers. 
and he uses them to go and preach the gospel and to plead with people. Now, salvation is not merely escape from hell. There are a lot of people who would like to escape from hell, but they don't want to escape from their sin. They love their sin. And in too many churches, you can have membership and you can do all the things and and you can still have your sin and still get to heaven. That's the wrong Jesus because Jesus was prophesied by the angel, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, 1 John. But if we are a slave to sin, we're not saved. There's so many verses that bring that to our attention. So those who received this word, welcomed this message, were baptized. This repentance and faith was expressed in a glad receiving of the convicting word of God and by public identification in the waters of baptism showing an outward sign of death, burial, and resurrection. Now, let's ask another question. How do you know you're called by God? This, is, this whole thing here is, uh, for the promises unto you and to your children, to all that are far off, even to as many as the Lord our God shall call. You say, well, how can I know if God is calling me? When the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict of sin. That's why it's so deadly to have little children and lead them through a prayer and pronounce them saved. There's been no conviction of sin. Pastor, come over to our house. Uh, uh, I led my son in in prayer, and, and he's saved, and he wants to be baptized. I walk over to the house, and, and I'm thinking of a particular individual right now. And, and so I said, young man, your dad tells me so and so. And so. Tell me, what, what's going on? Uh, tell me about what happened between you and Jesus. Uh, he, he said, you got saved. What, what, what took place? Just a blank stare. No consciousness of sin, no awareness of sin, no conviction of being a sinner. And so I said, Mom and Dad, I'm sorry, I can't baptize them. Oh, but I was there. I heard them pray. I know they're saved. You don't know any such thing. I don't care if it's an adult. You cannot be God and the Holy Spirit and pronounce another person saved. Only God can do that. And he has his ways and they're not confusing. He convicts of sin. He empowers and moves you along to a place of repentance, turning your back on your old ways, your old hopes, your old desires, and showing you the wonder of Jesus. And you find yourself crying out, Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. And when you get up from that experience, you don't say, praise me. Come on, neighbor, do what I did. No, you say, praise God. I know if he can save a sinner like me, he can save anybody. So I'm giving you the gospel too. 
and then public expression in the waters of baptism. Here was a, a man who'd been to the city of religion, had been to Jerusalem, a eunuch. He's leaving, he's still unchanged. But there is certainly a sign that something is going on. You don't pick up Isaiah 53 unless there's a void in your life. And God has placed a void in your life. And, and you, who is this? And he needed revelation. And God sent a co-laborer into the chariot of that man. And he opened to that same passage in Isaiah 53 and preached unto him Jesus. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. What a glorious gospel passage. And so the eunuch said, well, what hinders me from being baptized? See, God's at work in his mind and heart. If thou believest, thou mayest. Not just a little intellectual but there's something is transpiring in his life. In the book of Acts and other places, sometimes they'll just say the word believe. Other times they'll just say the word repentance. Biblically, when there is one that is from God, the other one is there. Paul would say in Acts 20, 20, I have preached repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what we're looking at is the foundation as to how Jesus builds his church. In Gallatin, he tells us that we need to embrace the root problem of lostness. We need to embrace our high calling of being a laborer together with God. I hope that because of meeting today and looking at God's word, we'll never be the same. How can we? I'm just a nobody. I don't have a big job. I don't drive a big car. I don't live in a big house. Are you a Christian? You are a laborer together with the God of the universe, Jesus, who is building his church. You can be standing next to the president of the biggest bill of the biggest company in the whole world, and a limousine rides him up and, and, and all that, and... But if he's not a laborer with God, he's to be pitied. Standing behind him, beside him, whether he thinks anything about it or not, you're astounded. Here's somebody who thinks he's somebody. By the grace of God, no credit to myself, I am somebody. I'm a child of God, saved by the blood of the Lamb. A laborer together with God. And so we must embrace that. And the true preaching of the gospel brings conviction of sin. Issues forth in repentance and faith and, and uh, testimony in the waters of baptism. As many as the Lord our God shall call. This is the path. But there's more. And this is basically how far we got two Sundays ago. And we had very little to say about verses 42 through 47. So let's look at that again and see what bursts forth 
in those verses. So, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men, to everyone, uh, to every man, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So these people who had been brought under conviction of sin from the preaching of the gospel, it pleases God by the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. That's what the Bible says. We stand there. We're not looking for some new method. Oh, but... Don't you understand, if you go to the bookstore, you can find a whole list of books by successful pastors. They now have thousands in attendance. And so everybody runs and buys a book or goes to their conference. Let me tell you how I did it. And some of the biggest ones of those, you know what they did? They went to the world and they got their systems and concepts of how to relate to people from people who are not even Christians. And these methods, you know why people do it? Because they work. If all you want is a crowd. If all you want is religion. And invariably they minimize, as time goes along, the preaching of the Word of God. We've got to have an entertainment. We've got to have all manner of excitement. We've got to have lights, and we've got to have sound, and we've got to have this and that. The gospel? Just preach the gospel? Now, Jesus said, I'll build my church. We're not talking about building a harlot. All this other stuff, if you want to build a harlot, that's how, that's how it's done. It's done all the time. And at the head of that stream is a lot of preachers. And Jesus is going to say, as he said, he, as he revealed in Matthew 7, many will say unto that day, in that day, did I not do this in your name, and this in your name, and this in your wonderful works, preach, cast out demons? And he said, I, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Your secret lifestyle is one of sin and iniquity even though you're highly successful. Your books sell. People follow in your steps. No, we're talking about, Jesus is talking about building his church. And we're looking at his model as given in Acts chapter 2. And so uh, after people are brought into conviction of sin and repent and believe and obey the Lord in the waters of baptism... Uh, without any begging. I've been to many pastor's meetings. 
well, we've got hundreds and we've got thousands and, and we can't get them to do Bible study. And, and the reason we have uh, 5,000 on the roll and, and only 800 attending is because we didn't do a very good job of discipling. Nobody begged anybody for discipling here. When you're born again, there's something that's automatic. You have a hunger. You may not remember, but when you were born physically, you begin to cry for food. You are very receptive to food. And the evidence that I see as I look in the mirror and as I look at you, you're still very receptive to, to food. Well, it's sort of a necessity if you're going to live. I doubt, I know some of you, you may go to someone after the service and say, would you please go, to, go out to eat with me? That just probably because you want some company and fellowship. Uh, you're probably not having to beg. If you're having to beg someone to eat, it's because they're sick. Sometimes we can have that sort of thing. And spiritually, that happens. But so these people are continually devoted to the apostles' doctrine. That's what we hold in our hand, the apostles' doctrine. The church is built on the, the foundation of the Apostles and the prophets, the New Testament and the Old Testament. So the Roman Catholic or the Mormon comes up to you and says, well, you don't have any apostles. We have apostles. And you can go to some people in the charismatic world. We have apostles. I'm not interested in your apostles. I'm interested in these. They have God's authority. God's word is sufficient. And having fellowship with believers, partaking of the Lord's Supper, prayer with believers, reverential fear of God, sharing possessions, sharing meals, praising God, having respect from the neighbors. Into this environment, God adds more believers. Now, there have been and are day today, and there will be people who are faithful in walking with the Lord and doing his ways, and they don't have a crowd. Somewhere else, they might. This is not a guarantee that we need to get a building committed together because we're going to need a bigger building. We might. We might not. That's not the point. But the Jerusalem model of a New Testament church, as we look at verses 42 to the end of the chapter, involves much more so far as your attitude about church. It involves much more than, oh, it's Sunday, I need to go and give God a Sunday morning kiss. Get that over with. Oh, that's if I have nothing else that I need to do. Jesus is calling us to the Jerusalem model. A model where because of new birth and because of the Holy Spirit living within us, there is an inward desire and hunger for the word of God, for fellowship with believers, for prayer with believers, uh, for ministry, for sharing. And so in light of this, in light of verses 36 through 47... 
Let's bring it home. When a non-Christian or a believer sees us, talking about us, in daily life, or walks into a Sunday school class, or sees us in the neighborhood, or at work, they should be able to take note and to see evidence that we are redeemed people who are devoted to the Word of God, who have fellowship with other believers, who strongly value the Lord's table, who pray with other believers, who have a reverential fear of God, who are open to sharing their possessions with others so that others are not left out in the cold. Now, there's a needy world out there, and I mean, we could be a, a church of 10 million people, and everybody giving lavishly, and it would just be a drop in the bucket to meeting all the physical needs that are in the world. What the Bible tells us is that we are to do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith. This is talking about giving to the household of faith. This is talk about, talking about having your ears and eyes open to spiritual, emotional, and physical needs in the household of faith. And so people should witness this reality coming out of our lives. And yes, they will, they're watching us. They'll at times witness us sinning. But all is not lost. Because when we're walking with the Lord, when we know Jesus, he convicts us of our sin. He'll bring a Nathan along. David, this guy's got thousands of sheep. This guy has just one. This rich man goes and gets this one for a feast. And David says, not in my kingdom. It's in Psalm 51, where David has a prayer of repentance. Psalm 32 we can see the background of that period of time between when he sinned and when he repented. He was probably hid from the people, but in his soul he was tore up. Miserable. But when he repented, he didn't blame anybody else. He didn't blame Bathsheba. Lord, you could have kept her from being there. I mean, I... I was home needing rest, and I was just on top of my building, and surely I could have been there and not have to have been confronted with a beautiful naked woman. No. Lord, I did it. I sinned. I was wrong. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Restore me. And when I'm restored, I'll have joy again, and I'll teach others. See, even your failure as a Christian, when we're walking with him, becomes a great open door for sharing the gospel. The lost world around us, also this reality, life falls in, crumbles, falls apart. They have no resources. 
they have no hope. But you, no matter how bad it gets, you'll never lose your sonship. You'll never lose your co-labor position. You'll have grace greater than your sin. You'll have a situation in which uh, it is impossible but that Jesus is sufficient. Lord, deliver me of, of this thorn. My grace is sufficient. And so as a result of all of this, people will see us worshiping. Some people say, uh, preach the gospel and, and if necessary, use words. You have to use words, but you also have to live it. Don't, as Paul would say to, I think it was Titus, don't cause the gospel to be blasphemed. Rather, cause the gospel to be adorned. So here's Paul and Silas, just doing God's will and God's work, being co-laborers with God. But now they're beaten, in prison, bleeding. At midnight, they begin to sing. And God opens a cell. God begins to save people. It was the life lived, miraculous life lived, and then the gospel words spoken. Both are necessary. A visitor walks into our Sunday school class or worship service or into our home. They should witness a people taken up with the word of God, responding to the word of God. Nehemiah and Ezra, they're proclaiming the word of God to the people. Men, women, and children, and cho- men and women and the children. And, and as they're proclaiming the word of God and the spirit of God moves in repentance, what begins to happen? Oh, they begin to clap. Oh, no, they did not. It's fashionable to clap in church services. Only God knows what it means. It may mean that you like the preacher that said something you liked. But in worship services in in the Old Testament and in times yet to come in heaven, in the Revelation, the word of response is amen. Not amen, I liked it. Amen. So be this. So be this, Lord, in my life. The word of God is spoken. So be this in my life. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It would be pleasing to the Lord, regardless of who's preaching or who's teaching a class. God speaks to us. There is conviction. There is revelation. There is something that we glory in. Amen. Praise the Lord. We're not trying to create a show or draw a crowd or point to ourselves, but we're worshiping. Worshiping the Lord. So, people should witness that people taken up with, with the word of God, responding to the word of God. You know what would be pleasing to the Lord at the end of many or most or even all of our services. You know, at the end of our bulletin, pull pull out your bulletin for a moment. 
You remember after the sermon, it says response. And we sang a hymn. And we, we, we're not typical Baptists. We don't use this time to try to get people down the aisle and, and get people to uh, kneel and pray and, and manipulate people. But again, in Scripture, we find that when the Word of God is preached and proclaimed, there is a response. And for example, in Psalm 22, verse 22 and 25, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise thee. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. When we sing that last hymn, now and forever until Jesus comes, feel free to obey those verses. Psalm 35, 18, I will give thanks in the great congregation. I will praise thee among the people. Psalm 66, 16, come and hear all you, all you who fear the Lord, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. Now let's picture for a moment a congregation where we actually obey the word of God. And there are lost people sitting out there. And there's somebody who's really struggling and they're, they're tormented. And, and they see the, a congregation that responds to the word of God. Do you think that would encourage them? Children. During response time, they hear you get the microphone and say, you know, uh, this was sort of done in private, but because it affects the whole congregation, I just want to tell you, and I've already asked my son, or maybe I'm doing it for the first time right in front. Uh, son, I corrected you in anger. It was wrong. I'm going to talk to you more about it later. But it, it, it put a damper on the Spirit of God in the whole congregation. And I'm asking for forgiveness and I'm asking for prayers. I'm not going to make any excuse about it. So we conclude by testifying that God spoke to me through his word, convicting me. God spoke to me today through his word, encouraging me. God spoke to me through his word, instructing me. God spoke to me today, rebuking me, correcting me. And you might or might not get more specific than that, but that's pretty specific. Or God spoke to me and brought me from death to life, right in the middle of the message. Do you know he can do that? Or during Sunday school? Or I was on the way to church? Or I was at home? When a visitor walks into our classes, worship services, our home where we work, where we live. They should see a 21st century experience of the New Jerusalem, of the Jerusalem church. A conviction of sin rooted in God's divine calling. A glad receiving of the word of God, repenting, believing, giving open testimonies in the waters of baptism. A whole new lifestyle bursting forth. 
continually devoted in the word of God, having fellowship with believers, partaking of the Lord's Supper, wouldn't miss it for nothing. Prayer with other believers, reverential fear of God, sharing possessions, praising God. Into such an environment, Acts 2 says he adds more believers. The Jerusalem model reveals to us what takes place when God savingly calls and of how God uses even new converts, which is what they were in Acts 2, to labor together with him as he builds his church. Our Father, we've seen some revolutionary things in your word this morning, revolutionary in the sense that it's strange and different and something that we are too far from. Help us to make forward steps of surrender and faith. Help us to go back to this passage again and again and say, Oh, Lord God, I want to be a laborer. You've called me to be a laborer with you. I want to be equipped and prepared. Father, I want to thank you for the good job you've given me, something to drive, to get places, place to live, so many blessings. But those were never an end in themselves. They were just blessings so that we could be about our co-laboring calling. These other things pay expenses. They're necessities of life, and we treasure them because they're part of where we go for our mission field. Father, work in every heart. There are those here today who've never professed faith in Christ, work by your spirit, convicting of sin, crying out from the heart, what hinders me from being baptized? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. May there be believers who out of just the compulsion of their heart want to give thanks for what God is doing in their lives. Father, we want nothing but that which is of your spirit, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.